Welcome to the Dead Good Staffordshire podcast. These podcasts have been created for Dying Matters Awareness Week. You'll get a new podcast every day this week talking about all sorts of different things to do with Dying Matters. Now, every minute someone in the UK dies, but many of us still do not feel comfortable talking about dying. Talking more openly about dying can help you to make the most of life and to support loved ones. We want people to actively make plans for themselves, share them with friends and family, support the bereaved and offer support and help to those who may need it. People shouldn't be afraid to ask for help or to offer help. Communities are growing larger and more varied and all can be affected by death and loss. So in between the 14th and 20th of May 2018, during Dying Matters Awareness Week, there are lots of activities taking place across Staffordshire to encourage you to talk about death and dying to help you think what can you do to be more active in planning for your future talking about death and dying won't make it happen but asking what can you do and taking a few small actions can reassure you and your loved ones about the future Hello, welcome to today's episode of Dead Good Staffordshire Podcasts. And today we are back at the Dougie Mac, the Douglas Macmillan Hospice in Stoke-on-Trent. The fact of the matter is, we are all going to die. But it's how we deal with that and how we deal with that not only as somebody who has a terminal illness and knows they're going to die... But what happens to our families, our friends, all our loved ones afterwards? And that's something that is looked at here at the Dougie Mac. My name's Andrea Ryder and I'm the manager of the Counselling and Psychological Support Service and I'm also a psychological therapist. So tell me a little bit then about the Counselling and Psychological Service please. The service is kind of divided into two areas, one which is the psychological support which is for patients, relatives, families and couples. And the other one is our bereavement service, which is anybody that's been affected by um, the death of somebody um, that they care for, whether that's a family member or a friend. How do people access the service? Um, Firstly, the bereavement um, service. Um, Six weeks after a death at the hospice, or um, somebody that's known to the hospice, um, we send out bereavement information. And in that information, it includes information on understanding what bereavement is and how it feels, and um, also um, kind of a request for if they want any support then we can offer various support. So in the bereavement service, we offer one-to-one counselling. We offer telephone support and we have two groups. We have a monthly um, daytime group and a monthly evening group. So uh, also people can just ring the service and give, you know, we can, they can be referred in that way too. So they can self-refer. Sometimes staff also refer people, so if they think that they are, 
you know, struggling after the death um, of a, a loved one, then um, we'll get a referral from them. The psychological support service is a little bit different in the sense that we take internal referrals. So what we acknowledge in the hospice is that we are all part of working with um, patients holistically. So we all look after the psychological and emotional well-being of our patients and their family members. However, some people might need a little bit of extra support or they might need to work through some of the fears that they've got about the future um, or fears about um, their family members. And in that work, that's where we might work on a one-to-one or we might work with a couple or we might work with a family group. So it's always about what is best for the patient and what is best for their family. So does everyone need counselling if they have a palliative illness or they become bereaved? No, they don't. I mean, what we I mean, grief and death are natural. It's going to occur and happen to all of us. Um and so our reactions are often very normal reactions to the loss. Um However, sometimes people might need a space, a safe space, to talk through and explore how they feel. What we sometimes find for people um, is that when somebody's diagnosed with a palliative illness, um, sometimes a communication between family members might be a bit difficult. And that's normally born out of um, a sense of protecting each other. So families sometimes stop talking about how they feel and so the aim of therapy in that sense would be to try and support the couple to have honest and open conversations that ultimately will lead to what we call a good death um but not everybody needs that people have got strong family um support networks many people are able to talk to their family members it's just knowing that we're here if people do hit a struggle at the point of a bereavement, it um, there seems to be a period of time in which family and friends are very actively supportive. And then there's a time when normality occurs and people return back to work. And um, the, the significant bereaved family members might at some point feel quite isolated. And the counselling for that is, I guess it's about... Again, having that safe, confidential space in which you can talk about things um, that you might be feeling or thinking, um, but that you don't have to protect the counsellor. You don't have to consider um, the counsellor's feelings about the death of that person or your emotions. And so um, that's why some people need it and some people don't need it. How does counselling and psychological therapy help people then? Okay, so a little bit of like I just explained about what we do. Um, Bereavement counselling is a way of exploring difficult feelings, very natural feelings, but difficult feelings, um, sadness and a sense of profound loss. And, you know, the death, death for some people is, um, it can be very traumatic And there can be lots of thoughts and images about the end of that person's life. 
And I guess, again, what we're supporting um, that person with in counselling is to express that, to work through that, to let that play, to let, it's almost like a reoccurring, repeating um, film that goes over and over in somebody's mind. But it was oft, it's often the most traumatic memory that they're holding. So whether that's for the patient, the traumatic memory is the diagnosis or the treatment that they've undergone. Or for the bereaved person, it might be the death of that person. And so to explore it and eventually what what starts occurring is that new memories, fresh feelings um, start to emerge. And the, the, the traumatic um, memory, although still there, almost becomes diluted by other memories that start to kind of come through for the person. Again, like I said before, it's important to know that um, it's a confidential space. And that confidentiality is paramount for us as therapists and counsellors and for all our client group. Because that has to be a space in which the person knows that they're not going to be judged. That um, they know that they're going to be responded to with empathy and warmth. And that includes to people's anger. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. And what counselling enables the person to do is to work towards accepting these very natural emotions. Um, Again, like I say, in that safe and confidential space. How did you get into this as a job? Well, I began 20 years ago in counselling and I come from a mental health background Um, However, I've worked in prisons, I've worked in community settings and seven years ago I came here and when I came here and started, I got the job obviously and when I um, started to work with people, my sense for me is that I had come home as a therapist and it's the most privileged of work that I've ever done. Every person that I've ever met in my career journey and in my life, it is a privilege to for people to share their experiences with you. There is something deeply profound and rewarding to work with somebody as they move towards the end of life, supporting them to make great memories with family, supporting them to understand their, their fears and their hopes um, and being on that journey with them side by side but without them ever having to feel that they have any responsibility for me or other therapists that work in our service. My name is Martin McGonagall and I'm the spiritual care lead here at the Dougie Mac. What's the difference between spirituality and religion? There are many of our English words which have their roots in other languages. So the word spirit comes from the Greek word psyche and it's, it means that breath of life, that thing within us, that element of us which brings us to life as opposed to just existing. It's those things which bring us hope and joy and strength and peace and meaning and love. Um, and I love the fact that the the ancient Greeks also used the word psyche to name what we call a butterfly. 
you know, something which is beautiful, which is fragile, which is transient. Religion, um, on the other hand, comes from Latin meaning to bind together. So somebody who practices a religion um, does so by coming together with people of similar outlooks and expressions, maybe practices, beliefs, uh, customs. Um, they, it's a more communal aspect and way of expressing one's uh, inner spirituality. What is the importance of spiritual care in bereavement and bereavement care? Well, I think my belief and the uh, evidence is that what a person believes, what brings them strength and comfort and hope and peace, is affected by the events of life. And if those events are traumatic, or if they're literally life-changing events, then how those are dealt with um, can have a very strong impact on the, um, the future health of the individual. Do rituals have a place in bereavement and bereavement care? I, I believe that they do. Uh, rituals are a set of actions, sometimes with words, sometimes without words, which help to commemorate the important times in our life. Often they're the times of moving from one state of being to another state of being. So for example, when someone we love dies, we could ask the hospital or the hospice just to dispose of the body and we will carry on our lives as normal. But throughout history, in all cultures, Many people have felt it necessary to hold the ritual of a funeral, a ceremony um, of actions where we mark the, the significance of the individual. Uh, we acknowledge the change in our life. We express our grief in a safe place. We perhaps commend them to a supreme being or a god. And then we dispose of the body in a way which we feel is dignified and respectful. But also there's those rituals that we perform before death, you know, particularly at the end of life. Um, there may be the rituals of helping both the person who is dying and those with them to have the permission to let go and have the permission to travel on. Um, the rituals which allow them to just lay down any concerns or worries which might be on their mind. The rituals which help them hear, perhaps for the last time, perhaps for the first time, just how valued they are and how loved and supported they are by those around them. So again, I think ritual is one of those ways, it's one of the languages in which we express care for the spirit of the individual. And how can ritual help with bereavement? I think that if the end of life and its immediate aftermath are handled well, if it accords with the individual's wishes, if space is allowed to mark the deceased's life and say goodbyes, then the journey of bereavement has a higher chance of unfolding in a healthy way. And we know that scientifically 
there's growing evidence um, that caring for and including spirituality of the, uh, the spiritual aspects of the individual they can have a positive effect on um, on our health um, and, it, and it is I think about we, we live in a society where we're almost getting to stage where somebody you care for dies or somebody you care about dies and two weeks later you should be getting on with your life and actually I think ritual is part of that process which says bereavement and the readjustment to a new way of living the reweaving of the fabric of one's life is a much longer process than that and that there are rituals that we might perform immediately after death rituals we might perform for example um, with a funeral rituals perhaps in a year's time when we maybe plant a, a rose bush or set a tombstone rituals uh, of remembrance that that allows us to acknowledge that things have changed and things have happened and that our life is having to reorient itself to this new form of reality are our rituals changing very much so i think as as organized religion decreases in practice i think people are doing several things one of which i think is a uh, there is a a reaching back to see if there are those ancient rituals either that we as families and communities have or that our community may have had in ancient times as much as we know about those and also i think people are looking at contemporary rituals as well and uh, we see this with the marking of uh, roadsides where somebody might have died with a, a tra road traffic incident there have been placing of flowers and shrines we saw that i think in a major way first of all with the death of uh, the princess of wales that that whole ritual marking but also i i think it is interesting i've noticed more and more particularly younger people using tattoos as a way to mark significant events in their life births deaths uh, commitments to each other and so i think in that sense we're we're very much using our creativity to form a um a ritual a a wordless language of marking what's happening to us how did you get involved in all of this and how did you end up here at the doggy mac um well i'll start with that last bit first i came to the doggy mac because i was working originally in an nhs hospice in west london so part of coming to the doggy mac was because of its reputation and the opportunities for creativity and part of it was to escape London and find a more peaceful place to live and a place that I can breathe. And I think I got into this because I've always enjoyed using that creative aspect of myself and the questions for me about how we live and the significance we give to the events in our life and making sure that we are able to treat the individual as an individual and not as a disease or a case or um, a patient number from the moment of birth to the moment of death 
and beyond, I think is a really important aspect of what it means to be human. I think sometimes people, because there is still this impression that spirituality is religion, I always say when I meet patients for the first time that uh, at its best, religion can be spiritual, but spirituality doesn't need religion to be fully itself. And it's very much an expression of the individual. And I think particularly when it comes to funerals, people will say, do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? What is allowed? And I say, actually, as long as it's illegal, as long as it is legal, I should say, sorry, it is allowed and you can be as creative as you want because actually it's about expressing who you are and forming a place where those who are dear to you are able to express what's happening for them and what you mean to them. Um, so I find it a quite a creative and fruitful encounter at its best.